Welcome to Engaging with Psychoanalysis. I'm Tom Schumann. I'm a mental health counselor interested in better understanding the theory, history, and practice of psychoanalysis. I aim to do so through discussions with practitioners, thinkers, educators, and others involved in the psychoanalytic tradition. If you're interested in being a guest on Engaging with Psychoanalysis, please email me at engagingwithpsychoanalysis at gmail.com. Thanks, and enjoy the show. In this episode, I speak with Bobby Bowie about integrating psychodynamic therapy with other psychotherapeutic modalities and psychological points of view. Dr. Bowie is a licensed psychologist. In addition to teaching clinically focused courses at SUNY New Paltz, he provides psychotherapy to patients and conducts psychological testing. Enjoy the interview. That's, that's looked a little different over the years. So I, I wonder, though, right now in, in your practice of psychotherapy, what that tends to look like with the understanding that it, it probably looks pretty different from client to client. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, cause I think the client, I mean, I see children to adolescents to adults. And then when I work with children and adolescents, I actually work with their parents as well. So obviously it's, it's not the same structure as what you think is a lot of people think is, you know, working psychodynamically, but um, all that informs, you know, I mean, psychodynamic theory is probably the, the most comprehensive in looking at developmental issues, right? And p- waiting, p- putting emphasis into, into that. So when you're working with young people, you're kind of, you, you obviously you, you look at their early development, but you're actually a huge part of that process, right? And you can actually, um, I would say if, if we want to talk about how uh, they're still developing their identity and um, understanding how, who they are in the world, I mean, you're, kind of a lot of it is you're a part of that and i think um uh in that sense it's it's useful to have that theory even though they're they're obviously they're not adults and we're not you know always looking at conflict mm-hmm. just like a conflict yeah so uh that way so it sounds like it's it's a, a grounding from which you, you can hold it somewhat lightly but you can also use it to frame uh these patterns of development that you come into contact with when working with children. Yes. Yeah. Cause even, yeah, even with young kids, even though their, their identities are still forming and, and there are obviously there are huge variations in how they present themselves. And obviously there are things that are um, more innate. So people, children are born with different temperaments. Um, you know, there's conditions like, uh, autism spectrum where they are in the spectrum so in in those cases you're working with them but um yeah they're coming with different um strengths and and and, and challenges and so um but the development you it's uh you're obviously looking i'm, I'm always looking at through a developmental lens right mm. um to see um how these things might have impacted them um you know from birth on you know to when i, I see them so so Taking a, a psychodynamic view of development, um, how much does that stick with stick to kind of the classic Freudian stages of psychosexual development, or how much is it based on uh, later contributions? I would say much more later contributions. I mean, it's not that I don't believe in like what Freud was talking about, because if you look at Freud's 
psychosexual stages. I mean, I don't think everyone buys into that anymore. I think most psychoanalysts don't. But um, there are aspects of it that people have extrapolated. I think whether, whether you're talking about Erickson's theory of psychosocial, which you know, incorporates more about the child's early environment with its caregivers, object relations theory, obviously, and then also um, attachment theory. Mm. So even though no one really says, you know, this person has oral issues or anal issues, we know that early development matters. And we have other theories now that kind of grew out of what Freud was writing about, like attachment and um, object relations, that really inform us about like how early patterns in relating influence uh, relationships later on in life, right? Mm. Influences a sense of self, influences self-esteem, ability to uh, initiate rather than doubt, etc. So um, all that is, I think, is there, um, but not in the way that Freud used that language. I don't think anyone really thinks that way. You can. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I try to say, you know, this is what Freud probably meant when he was talking about um, dependency in the oral stage, mm. um, but I think he, I don't, I don't think I, when I'm sitting with patients, I don't like thinking like they have oral issues or anything. I don't, yeah, and I would never use that language with a patient or when I'm writing something. So, you know, one time uh, this kind of brings to mind. I was talking to a uh, a therapist who who is very much. Uh, Cognitive, cognitive, behaviorally oriented, and uh, Freud came up, and the and the psychosexual, the stage of psychosexual development came up, and um, the way he f- saw it and the way he phrased it is, he said it's very good and somewhat accurate poetry about development. And I, I'm not sure if I'm of that mind, mm-hmm. but I, I. I think it's a, a very interesting thing to say. But I think it's more than poetry or, you know, and Freud was definitely not just prolific in his writing, but really, I mean, he was just a strong writer in the sense of being able to explain what hadn't been explained previously um, in the field. And so um, I don't think it's just poetry. I mean, Freud didn't work with children, but he listened to people enough to recognize patterns that probably had to come from somewhere. They, patterns in relationships or patterns of responding to the world or, or ways we think about ourselves don't just uh, develop spontaneously. And he wanting to kind of work, and, and no one kind of works that way. We kind of work forward now, right? We get you know, with the work of Anna Freud and Melanie Klein, we work with children and we see how they develop and we can uh, develop the theories as we're following them. And that's how, like, I think modern developmental psychologists look at it, right? Because they do longitudinal studies, but Freud didn't work that way. And that's the criticism for it, that he worked backwards. He was extrapolating from, you know, what potentially could have happened in early life to lead to this, um, these symptoms, right? What early trauma or what deficits would lead to this. So, uh, it wasn't the best method, but it's, de- it's definitely more than just, um, like, good, good storytelling or poetry. Mm. It's more than that. So, um, so I could see one wanting to criticize Freud in that way, but I also don't think it goes that far to just being something we read and it sounds beautiful about development. There, there are, there, if, if that were the case, then uh, 
attachment theory will be originally started and in, was influenced by psychoanalysis. Um, obviously, Eric Erickson, th- their theories would not have informed modern day developmental theory mm-hmm. uh, if it was just, you know, um, a, kind of like a fictional narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not sure that the intent there was necessarily to imply that it was fictional as much as, mm-hmm. well, we don't have to get wrapped up on this anecdote, but, um, <laughs> you know, the way that, that you're kind of framing the, the foundations of psychoanalysis of Freud, um, it, it's kind of like, no, it's uh, it was incredibly significant, but ultimately, and why wouldn't it be? It was insufficient because it was the mm-hmm. beginning of something that had to uh, grow right. and grapple with uh, the different um, theorists who yep. who emerged and who and yeah. tested in the field, right? Yeah. By other people who are practicing, who are saying this piece, this element works. This is there. This is not. Let's revise this like any science would, right? Mm. Or any practice. So yeah. Um like you, I like how you described it that yeah, it it was a foundation to build upon that um yeah it's insufficient. Uh you know, and it as it should be. It's it's you know, this is he he started it, but he, he has I always say when I teach like Freud has we have to teach Freud because he basically has the first word. Like mm. he but he doesn't have the last. And then when as we go through and learn the other theories, you're going to see how talk therapy has developed since Freud's, you know, works, his writing. I hope we're not getting too tangential, but do you think, do you feel that um, in developing past Freud, any of the, anything's been lost, anything that was really valuable in, in Freudian thought? Um, that has maybe fallen to the wayside, unfortunately, uh, rather than as a, a part of evolution of psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy. You know, I, I think very little has been lost just because so much has been um, redefined mm-hmm. in other orientations that were achieving the same aims or basically sit doing the same thing as what Freud was doing. So, so if like uh, you were bringing up like people who, like cognitive people, well, they talk about schemas and cognitive schemas for relationships as if, you know, we can recognize this with somebody in a session. And I'm just saying, yes, you can recognize that. And Freud was picking out relational patterns and so were the object relationists and the interpersonal analysts. But um, what the cognitive behaviors aren't really caring so much about is how these cognitive schemas are formed. And mm-hmm. I think it's because when you're teaching cognitive behavioral therapy, you're not looking so much, the emphasis is not on history. They don't have a developmental platform. I mean, you go into any cognitive behavioral, uh, even the best, uh, you know, um, uh, Beck to his daughter, Judith, I mean, you don't see a developmental model. Uh, or if you do, it's a very... Um, it's brief, it's limited. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're not looking at that. They're looking at this is a s- cognitive pattern of, of, of entering relationships that the person repeats that is um, harmful, that's distorted, 
but not looking at the way a psychodynamic therapist would because they're not looking at development. And so I, in that sense, these certain things haven't been lost, right? Um, and, and, and we can... I'm not saying that the, the, the cognitive behaviorists need to have a developmental theory because I think, you know, if you are doing the work intuitively as a therapist, you're kind of looking at that already. Mm -hmm. Like, they may not know uh, attachment theory as well, but they could probably, most therapists working in a cognitive behavioral frame could be like, you know, this person has been relating to people like this probably much of their lives mm -hmm. or you know, or, the, or since the time where the symptoms have developed, right, that they, they were unhappy or the relationships they can't sustain. And those things can go back to childhood from, and, and they'll look at things like, I see a lot of cognitive behaviorists talk about like, you know, this child was bullied, right? And so they have this idea of what relationships are now, mm -hmm. right? Like they're afraid to approach people, they're anxious. Um, so, um, so they, I mean, they don't really emphasize it, but they, I do think they think that way. I would imagine it would be um, very incomplete in looking at somebody if you didn't consider their history. Yeah. And, and I mean, and even the, you know, the idea of the schema, it's, it's not, the, you know, it's not conscious, like in my understanding right. of it, but it, it's implicit. It's an implicit way right. of organizing thought. Um, of course. Yep. Which is in in you know in uh, the most technical sense, it's psychodynamic. Definitely. So they call it. So they have other words. So they don't use the word unconscious. Mm -hmm. They'll say these are like you said, implicit. Yeah. So that's really thrown into their their literature. And so in that sense, I I don't like you don't have to go to war with people with different theater orientations. If you, if you have this integrative approach and you're studying the material, you're going to, like I said in the beginning, you see how the way we're practicing, even though we may use different language, um, comes out to be almost the same when we're in the session. I wouldn't say exactly, because obviously psychoanalysis has, and psychodynamic therapy has things that are unique to itself. Um, but um, yeah, I think that in that, in that sense, um, that's where I think I don't have to go to battle. And I think that's where we have problems a lot with different th people from different orientations thinking like we have the better mm. method, you know, and we're going to um, publish more, you know, yeah. uh, empirical um, studies showing that we do better work. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. So if you can just, if everyone would just study what everyone else was doing and see the commonalities, I think that would, be, would help people get over that hump. Yeah. And as I'm understanding it, you kind of, you have a psychodynamic epistemology, but mm -hmm. a eclectic or integrative approach. Would that yeah, be? so even with that, yeah. So even within uh, psychoanalytic or psychodynamic theory, I pull from all of them. Yeah. So from, from ego psychology, you know, to uh, object relations, to, to classical, to interpersonal. I mean, I, I wouldn't say, you know, I'm not always working from like a drive theory, but I do see patients when they come in. I definitely see certain patients with ids that are, I just feel like their entire lives, even when parents are describing their kids to me, that they work under the pleasure principle. Like they want something and they want it now. And it's really difficult to live in a world where you don't get those things. And the parents are frustrated because they don't operate that way. You know, that 
my child shouldn't get everything they want when they want it. I, I couldn't achieve that, and I don't think it's healthy. But the child comes in that way, you know, and, and parents will say something, but our daughter isn't like this. Only our son is like this. You know, our daughter is, you know, I can tell her to wait 10 minutes, and she'll wait 10 minutes, and she'll go find something else to do. He throws a tantrum. Um, and so, and they, the, the parents are like, what are we doing wrong? And I, and I said, like, well, let's go back to elementary. What was your son like, you know, the first year of life before? And they'll tell you. They'll tell you from their interactions, how the, the child slept, how the child, that there was dis- distinct um, behavioral differences. Mm. Um, and it's not like the parents raise these children in distinctive ways. I mean, they, most parents only know how to parent. They're not going through these parenting classes that's just, you know, revolutionized how they parent each child to the next. Um, but the children come into the world. And, and in that sense, when, I, when Freud writes about drive theory and, and, and how we differ in our hidden egos, um, that is always in the back of my mind when I, you know, when I see people. But I, again, I don't, it's not like that drives my work, you know, in I, maybe going back 30, 40 years that some of the more traditional psychoanalytic institutes in New York City and other metropolitan areas, you would probably see entire schools of analysts that worked from that perspective, that they thought object relations was just, um, you know, uh, a farce. So, um, but yeah, I work from a pretty integrative approach. But I do want to go back to your, your initial question of what, we think we've lost because there are certain things that we have lost that um, I think we need to bring back mm-hmm. and we need to emphasize. And one of the first thing is that Freud in his training of psychoanalysts believed that everyone needed to be in their own treatment. Mm-hmm. And we don't have that anymore. We don't have that even at programs that where the emphasis is on development or there, there's a, a faculty member who, like myself, is uh, dynamically oriented, um, there isn't this um, belief that all mental health practitioners need to be in their own treatment. Yeah. And I think that is a huge loss. And, and I see it when I, I'm teaching and when I'm supervising clinicians um they don't know what how how to figure out what is happening in the room because they've never been a patient in the room Mm -hmm. and that's really difficult to teach someone if you haven't been there um for even like um i I hear new clinicians say it's very uh, it must be very difficult to start therapy and i said well how would you know Mm -hmm. from what from what patients have told you or was it difficult for yourself to make that call or if you ever tried to attempt to make that call and didn't make that call? Um, is it difficult because you were afraid, like some of the patients talked about, or one, one goes through one therapy, that initially, what if I walk into the waiting room and, I, and people see me? Mm. And what if someone I knows, know is in the waiting room? And so if, when you, you go through that, that process, even the initial process of initiating therapy for yourself, um, all that is in your head. Um, and, and we don't expect that of mental health practitioners. They don't go through that. Um, sorry about that. I think it happens. <laughs> we could take a pause. I think that we're getting our propane delivered.
I'm just gonna start recording again. Okay. And um, so yeah, we were talking about uh, how most uh, counseling or other psychotherapeutic programs do not require uh, clinicians or uh, you know uh, students to undergo therapy themselves. Right. And what I'm curious as what do you think about this? Someone who's completed recently completed a program. Um, did you get a sense that students were uh, pursuing it on their own, or or were they? Was it something that they weren't even considering? I think a lot of people who go <laughs> who uh, who go to school to be therapists are in therapy just you know not not as part of that training but um just because there's a certain there's obviously a certain faith in the process there Mm -hmm. so you'll you'll kind of end up saying all right well if people get something out of this i'd like to get something out of it as well Mm -hmm. um I don't know how many of my classmates were actively in therapy, but I certainly got the sense that most of us had been in therapy. Um, I would be really surprised if anyone... I don't know. I guess it didn't come up that much, but it it came up enough that it was my impression that most, uh, you know, that most people in the program had some experience as clients. Uh, Now... Uh, I, I, what is that ultimately worth? I think that depends on their experience and also, you know, their experience as clients and also what they like to accomplish as clinicians. Um, because, you know, as you said, it gives you some experience in the client role, so it gives you some insight into it. But, uh, I mean, I would think, because I know that in psychoanalytic programs that that grant people licenses as as uh, psychoanalysts, uh, analysis is required. Right. And my understanding is that is not so much for just just to get a feel for the room. Not, yep. but, but But to work through... Uh, certain conflicts that might come up as an analyst. Um, so obviously, for most people who are just incidentally getting therapy, that's not going to be the case. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's um, there's no like aim, right? So there's not with the psychoanalytic training. There's an aim that once you go through this process, you will work through as for yourself, your own struggles, conflicts, and so they don't bias uh, the treatment that you're going to be eventually carrying out. But also, if if you, you, but also to give you the mechanisms to figure out when that's happening, right? That that that's that's not only possible, but likely to happen. That there's going to be countertransference, hmm. and and where would what would you do when that comes up, and how would you know? And I think. Um, yeah, I think what you're saying, even if your peers were had at one time um, gone through therapy, which I think is beneficial uh, to one's practice later on. Um, first of all, there wasn't probably an aim to like this is why this would be helpful, 
and there, like you said, if you only had impressions of it, then there wasn't a discourse in in the classroom or the training that allowed one to reflect on that and to reflect on how the theories or the practice of psychotherapy applied to their own treatment, right? Mm. To say like, um, so the things that happen when a therapist confronts the patient, you know, um, that from a patient side, how difficult it is to hear that. And so when we confront patients, we do it in a very respectful and almost at times a delicate way so that they could hear it, what needs to be heard, but not in a way that feels uh, that they're being, uh, the patient's being attacked or criticized. And, then, and if you haven't been in your own treatment, then that's hard to gauge because you won't, you could be like, wow, I really respect this person. And they just said something to me that was really hard to hear and that could have been softer about it. And I think if you don't go through your own treatment, I think um, that falls, that, I mean, that, that's kind of like uh, a deficit in probably in, in the way you practice. You, you, you take longer to learn how to, to do things. Um, I, I think there's also something about just witnessing the therapist's role embodied by someone mm-hmm. else um, that is is almost necessary. You know, I, 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 uh, it brings to mind interviews I've heard with uh, stand-up comedians, mm-hmm. and they talk about how in their first couple of years, they're basically just aping someone that <laughs> yes. they look up to. Yep. And eventually they kind of find their own voice. And I feel like um, that's probably necessary for them. And that that's probably also necessary for therapists as right. well. Right. And that's everything. It's from how you set up your, you know, your room, you know, how you, you know, you, where you're seating and, and what you bring into your, your treatment room and um, all those things, how your, your own therapist set boundaries and that you feel more confident in that, right? To cut somebody off, like our time is up, like to hear that for yourself and not feel like, someone is slighting you even though you were about to talk about something so when you do that to your patient i'm sorry but our time is coming to an end even though they may be going talking about something that's really uh, significant or they're very emotional you know that there will be time to talk about it in, in in future sessions and you just want to get them to a place where when they leave the consulting room that day that they'll they're they're composed um so yeah there's so many advantages and i think the, i think the uh, one of the biggest advantages of being in treatment is um, like we live in a culture of managed care where we're supposed to do treatment in 12 to 16 sessions or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's so many models that students learn and they think, but if you, if one is in one's own treatment, one knows that, you know, in 12 sessions, what could I really accomplish? What would I reveal some, some of the, would I reveal everything about myself to someone in you know the, my deepest thoughts and, and experiences, uh, maybe experiences around shame, things I'm would would that be achievable in twelve sessions to even bring that up? And so I I think it kind of lends to this idea of like um, we have to be advocates for treatment to be that people could have access to treatment for much longer than twelve or 16 sessions. And I think when you're in your own treatment, you realize how long it takes to develop a therapeutic alliance, a trust, 
um, you know, and I and I I'll, I'll say it. I'll say it to my. I think now I'm pretty good at developing rapport and an alliance, but um, even with that, you know, I've I see patients for years, and you know, things come up, you know, two years into the treatment that they couldn't acknowledge early on. Yeah. Um, and so I'm just thinking, how do we do this in 12 to 16 sessions? And these are, yeah. And so in that sense, um, I think that's what we've lost. And I don't see us getting back there any time soon. I don't see anyone pushing for that. The most influential people in the field are not pushing for that. So well, This is something that, that's kind of come up on previous episodes, and it's that... Um... Yeah, I mean, as I understand it, some of it is just so, psychotherapy has been really reduced to uh, a tool to get someone back to functionality. Right. And maybe you can do that just for some amount of people in six to eight weeks. But, um, you know, processes take time and if if you're looking for some kind of fundamental change beyond that one one would expect that you'd have to uh, that would have to occur over some significant period of someone's life right and so what we're i mean what we're talking about is how we measure like you know functionality right and so empirical studies will say you know six months after treatment terminated, you know, only, you know, um, there was only 30% of the patients relapsed, right? But I always say, why don't you follow them for five years? Yeah. <laughs> because you'll see maybe 100% of them needed to return. And so they all would have benefited from long-term, longer treatment. Uh, but we don't measure in that way because that's expensive to do and it doesn't... Uh, lend to their argument, right? That you can do good treatment in whatever, 10 sessions. Um, and, and also, I mean, even if you measure for a longer period of time, ultimately, what are you measuring? Right. <laughs> so many factors, yeah. Yeah, because you can, you know, buy, you could uh, have a good score on the Beck depression inventory and you can, uh, you know, hold a job down and do all these things, but just kind of lack vitality yeah yeah uh yeah a passion for life um yep so an understanding of uh yeah uh of the world all those things so they they, they are not looking at that so um i imagine you know the integration in your work of modalities outside of the psychodynamic uh that when the uh, when that comes into play it, it is i imagine around function issues of functionality Am I yes a- yeah but it's also i mean here's the thing like you know if freud was alive today i believe he would be much more open to what's going on today than people think yeah i mean i think because he thought of it as a scientist and and so he probably would see things like i mean i use like in freud's time there wasn't a this positive psych positive psychotherapy positive psychology psychotherapy it's really i would say only in the last 
10 years has been formulated really well to look at people's strengths and to see how one's strengths can be used in the treatment room um, to help someone uh, who's suffering from any of the disorders, that even some, you know, from uh, the severe disorders like bipolar personality disorder, uh, um, sorry, bipolar disorder, borderline personality disorder, um, severe depression. Um, and so I think um, integrating these theories into it is very holistic and a more under, uh, you, you get an understanding of the whole person more. And I think where, I guess where I would have a problem with contemporary theory if, it, if it's to align with this DSM medical model where we're just looking at symptoms and not the whole person. And, and when I'm training my students, I say when you're listening, and especially even in, in intake to make a diagnosis, because most of them have to make a diagnosis in their first or second sessions with their patients, and they're so set on thinking like, so what are the things the patient needs to say for me to make this diagnosis. And I said, I, want, I don't want you to listen that way because the patient's giving you their entire selves. Mm. You need to listen to, like, so when a patient is telling you a story, I want you to listen how closely, how observant this patient is of their environment, what they're picking up, what the, um, from the, the emotions to the words that people use. And those are all strengths. You know, if a patient is telling a really good narrative, um, you should write that down. DSM doesn't care about stuff like that, but you as their person who's potentially going to treat them will need to know that this is their strength. Or you need to know that um, whether this person practices some type of mindfulness exercise or whether it be gratitude or et cetera, if they share that in the, in the initial intake with you, then you know that this is how they cope and you know that this is how they should continue to cope um, maybe you have to develop other ways of, you know, psychoanalysts would say defense mechanisms, healthier defense mechanisms, but you need to track the entire person. Hmm. Um, and I think, um, so I think the new theories are, are, can be good if they allow people, us to look at people in a more complex and holistic manner, hmm. rather than a traditional DSM, which, again, is also pushed a lot in some of these theories, newer theories, mm. and approaches. Yeah. yeah. So I, and, you know, uh, even, uh, even not just segmenting the person off in that way, but also just human nature, uh, you know. Yeah. Focusing too much on specific learning patterns or... Yeah, you know, you get the I I you know, and uh, in in my work, I actually I really like a lot of the the stuff from uh, the third wave behavioral therapies. I, I utilize a lot of stuff from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is very functional. But I, I try to be kind of careful uh, with that because you it's it does it can very much become. Um, a hammer that makes the world a bunch of nails. Hmm. Um, you, we've talked a little bit about uh, your work with children. Um, do you find that the degree to which you lean on 
uh, one more, well, I, you know, not to say lean, maybe utilize is a better term, one modality over another. Is that different depending on the age group of the client? It really doesn't. I, and I know, you know, historically there was this huge argument between like Anna Freud's camp and Melanie Klein's camp of can young children be analyzed? You know, Anna Freud didn't feel like they could. Uh, there wasn't enough ego development yet and stuff. And there's, but I, I mean, they're they're so technical in that way. And I think when I, when I sit with a client, whether it's a child or adolescent or adult, um, a lot of times I would, you know, it's hard to describe it, but what unfolds in the time that we're together helps me guide me guide me in saying like what am I gonna do and am I gonna be more directive or am I gonna be more kind of just sitting back and observing Mm. you know because I'll figure out what they need initially you know and obviously with adults if an adult comes into session and and is expecting me to say something you know after the initial like you know uh, how are you doing and and if there's a silence, I tend to always, if it's an adult patient who is revel- not obviously uh, in a severe state of um, turmoil, I expect them to start the session, even mm-hmm. if there's long pauses, because I think there's a lot we can read in those silences. Uh, but for a child, I'm not going to make them, they don't have that type of ability. Yeah. So I, So there's different ways of just if a child is having difficulty starting the session, I'm not going to make them sit. They're not there yet. And, and so there's different things that you do. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, it's informed by what the client is bringing in at that moment. So um, about where you lean, like what, what do you want to do? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what, what kind of questions would you ask? Um, if you can ask any questions at all. So, so. When you're working with a client for a period of time um and i imagine that with some of some of your clients it leans more and i i keep saying lean <laughs> okay. uh you end up it, it takes more of a psychoanalytic form than with other clients uh when working with someone for a long period of time and then something comes up where it feels appropriate to utilize something from another modality, what can that integration ever be tricky? Is there ever any concern that it will break the flow or some of the more relational stuff? No, I mean, I think, I think when you talk about theories in distinct ways, it can make it seem like, yeah, you're not following a, a true way of working or mm. you're not loyal to a method. And I don't think, I think because what, what we started out before the early session, I think there's a lot of overlap now between, you know, there's even the contemporary theories are extrapolating from dynamic mm-hmm. theory. So I don't, I feel in that way, you don't feel like you are, but it's also, um, 
like sometimes you have to be more directive in a situation where you know, like I work with a lot of adolescents and sometimes you have to be quite direct Mm -hmm. if if they're going to make a decision that's going, like a really poor decision. And I'm not going to trust that I'm going to have three to four months to work this through in, in a way where they're going to make this mistake by the time we're going to be able to really get to it in a level where I would like to process it. So mm-hmm. like, I'll give an example. Um, I was working with an adolescent boy who uh, was talking about, and I had I'd been seeing him for at least uh, about two years at this time. So we have a really good relationship and uh, uh, a good alliance that I could probably say anything. Um, but he was talking about how uh, a friend of him has a, had approached him and said, you know, we can make a lot of money without much risk if we start um, dealing, to basically sell pot on mm-hmm. a big level. And he wanted me to kind of give my thoughts on it, right? Like what I thought. Because I knew he was savvy in other ways in making money. Like he would buy sneakers. Uh, you know, the first day when they were launched, he would, you know, use all his savings and buy 10. And then, I don't know, it's like sell them for double the price or triple the price sometimes, mm. you know, because they were limited series. And so he was savvy. Yeah. Um, but they wanted to take it to another level. And um, was I going to sit there and through three months? I, I wouldn't have three months. No. They were going to start this within a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, so get the ball rolling on, you know, putting money into dealing pot through the mail, mm-hmm. how to source it in other states and to bring it. You know, he's bringing up things like, you know, uh, interstate laws and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you don't sit there and with an adolescent boy who's a minor, you know, eventually I'm going to have to talk to his parents about it. And, work this through you know you just don't have that time Mm -hmm. and so you do have to integrate other methods that are you know i would say more cognitive behaviorally based Mm -hmm. um than to 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 go like what's the root of this you know like what's the root of you needing to you know make more money or to 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 get something this way or pull something over someone else uh to you know or what would it mean for you to have to you know, I don't, sometimes, you know, I will get to that later, you know, like, we'll explore that. But in, in the, I remember in the session when that was happening, I was geared towards, I have to push him towards a way where he's not going to take the next steps to do this. Mm. You know, not demanding it, but to kind of really put it at the forefront rather than saying, what, what is the unconscious root of needing to do something like this? Um, so yeah, and and I don't think the patient in that situation felt like you know was there a huge shift in the way I was working. Yeah. Um, I don't think patients think of it in that way. So it's, I think it's more how we do it, you know. But um, yeah, and I think you know I, I would say I'm here. I here how we all work. It's so unique to ourselves. But I I. When I'm trying to teach my students how to work, I try to teach them how to work in a 
in a very, I, I always ask like, what are you doing in the room? What are mm. your, what's your thought process? And for me, when I was starting out, I wish someone would have given me a concrete framework. And I, I don't like when therapists say, well, uh, you know, there isn't a way, because there is a way, you know, for, I mean, I'm a, if we're talking about dynamic theory, I, I lean toward more object relations and interpersonal theory. So I tell my students, this is what you're going to do. And I tell them, not telling them that this is an analytic way of working. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I say, um, you know, you listen to what the person is talking about, right? And obviously, most people will be talking at the core of what most people are talking about, whether it's things at work or in the home or in their own lives, it all comes back to relationships, even if it's a decision, something like they want to figure out what they're going to do for their future. Mm-hmm. It's all relation-based, meaning a sense like, you know, will people respect this decision? Will people agree with me? Will, uh, will people think I'm, you know, so I always say, so you listen to it on a superficial level, and I don't mean superficial, it's like it's meaningless, but just the narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And then you listen within that story um, how they are perceiving others. Are others perceived as uh, benevolent? Are they critical? How are their people perceived in their life? Mm. And then in the story, you have to talk about this, how they perceive themselves. Um, are they doubtful? Are they reticent? Are they allowing themselves to feel certain emotions and not others, the self. Like, you know, what is there? And the last thing you're listening for is um, how does that impact this relationship in the room, the here and now with the therapist, right? And I'm spelling this out. I always tell students the word is the cost. So you're listening. The cost, the C is the concrete story that they're telling. The O in that story is the others. How are others? The S is... Uh, the self, how they perceive the self, and the T is how they perceive the, the therapeutic relationship. Mm. And I say, and if you just listen to it on that level, you're going to learn a lot about what you need to know. So as they're telling this story, you're always asking for like clarification to figure out, oh, tell, so you can figure out how they really see other people. Oh, so you think that your mom is going to do this. So tell me about that, right? And then you're, they're going to talk, you're going to see the self. But what you have to be mindful of is, and this is where it becomes analytic, is how others and selves are perceived in the story is happening there right in the room. Mm. And here is where people think, well, that's so analytic. But I'm, I'm, I said like, well, it is. But if you want to look at it through a contemporary lens, it's mindfulness. It's what's actually going on in the here and now. You know, so the, the, as the patient is telling the story, like, let's say it, it is making a big life change, they're concerned about what other people are thinking, but they're also thinking about what the therapist is thinking. Mm. Are you going to think that I'm stupid to walk away from a secure job and, and to do this, to study art? Are you also going to think that? Are you going to judge me? And because if you are, then what can I say in this room right now, right, that is safe or what? And so. I always say, that's what you're listening for. You're listening to those four elements in, in that. And, and you're listening it in a way to improve over time the patient's ability to 
if you're looking from object relations point, improve the quality of all their relationships, right? The one that's in the room right there, that's what we're working on, right? You know, the patient could sometimes say to me, like, I'm kind of embarrassed to even tell you what I'm about to do, right? So that's mm. the here and now. But that they're telling you something about other people in their lives, too, right? So if they're able to do that in the room because there is this trust and that you haven't been critical and you've kind of been non-judgmental and, and created space for that, then obviously that is going to hopefully trans, transform and and in themselves and saying like, I'm going to try to attempt to do this in my relationships outside of the consulting room. Right. Mm. Um, what we're helping them there in that situation, developing a sense of their own identity, uh, a core of who they are. Right. This is what I really want to do. I don't want to stay at this job that everyone thinks I should because it's secure and it's their status. I want to do this with my life. So um, in the room, you're constantly asking them to develop, ways to observe their own thoughts and feelings as we're analyzing this. So all these things that we are doing in this session, from just looking at that cost, and I, I should explain that better because it's not my model that I work with. Some of them I borrowed from a Canadian psychoanalyst, but um, I like it a lot. The cost, the cost is if, if, if the patient stays in relationships that are, unhealthy or dysfunctional that's the cost so they bring us these stories at the concrete level we see how they are perceive others we see how they perceive themselves and then the t is the therapeutic relationship in the here and now and what is being brought into the room and i always tell work with that if if you get lost in in and you start getting lost in the session because the pa patient is becoming emotional yes you can work with them to help calm them down but you're still listening to those things what triggered the patient to start to hyperventilate in session right it's the, the it's the story that they're telling about how others were going to perceive them or have perceived them in the past how i've been shamed how i've been thought of as you know making poor the person who makes poor decisions you know, and so all that is becoming overwhelming. The, you're reading the affect, but if you go back to those four letters, um, it's going to help you structure the session and to go like, what am I going to ask, right? How, how am I going to uh, move this forward? And I think most of the time, I think the other th three things that I tell them to do in the session is you're going to get, um, uh, you're going to clarify, confront, or interpret. Those are the only things that you're going to do. Because if you tell people, like, you have to do all these other things, and clarification is really easy. Tell me more about that, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, conf confrontation is like, you know, when you talk about this person, it seems like there's a lot of anger. You're confronting, right? And then you use interpretation. Rarely do you interpret. You, you have to be really sure about this. And this goes back to this whole idea of, like, if you're not in your own therapy, you don't know, you, you can't gauge how difficult it is to hear an interpretation. And so I always say, in a session, have one, maybe two. Mm. You can't have five. When you interpret five things in a session to a patient, um, that's overwhelming them. They're going to leave in a worse state than mm. they were when they walked in. So choose carefully about what it is you want to interpret. Um, because it's... It, it, can make up even if you do it in a respectful and a genuine way, it makes the patient feel like I'm an idiot. Am I an idiot for not seeing that? Like, how, how are you able to see that? 
and I'm not able to see that. Like, mm. And if you do that five times in a session, then the patient leaves feeling extremely dependent on the, the therapist and the process. And that's not the goal of treatment, right? The goal of treatment is for them to, for us to give them the tools, right, to do that on their own so that they will jump to it. So when you make the interpretation, they're like, ah, oh, I was just going to say that. I was going to say that, Dr. Bowie. I mean, you know, like I was just going to, I'm so glad you said that. You said it better than I, but I was thinking about that, how I'm behaving exactly the same way now as I did at my last job. This is my mm. pattern, right? So the therapist doesn't have to appear like, you know, this wise person who the patient depends on. Rather, the patient just, you, you make the interpretation at the right time when you feel that the patient's going to be able to hear it and be like, I got it. You're right. You said it better than I did, but I, I felt that inside already. So, um, so yeah, it's follow the cost model, I, I would say. It's very simple. And, and the idea that it costs the patient if they continue to go down these, using these relational patterns. Um, but then those are the only things, three things you do, really, is you get clarification, you confront, and you make interpretations every once in a while. And I, I would say, like, is that all treatment is? No, but if you give new clinicians a model to work with and then they start going off and doing work and like you said like i like your comedian analogy they get more comfortable with who they are they mm -hmm. get more comfortable with integrating other theories and they they watch themselves saying like you know it seems like you're overwhelmed talking about this at work right now let's take a break and let's do some breathing exercise that we did mm -hmm. before to help you and so when you're at work and this happens again you can, I want you to be able to walk yourself through this. And that, people would say, that's not dynamic. Well, it doesn't have to be dynamic, mm. but you're giving them a tool that they're going to be able to use in the session with you uh, to feel comfortable. And then when they're out there uh, in the world, be able to apply that themselves. And, um, and I would hope that most dynamic analysts would not be against working that way, where you talk about when you integrate something that is outside of, you know, uh, the traditional practice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I feel like I just went on a ramp. No, that's ramp what you're supposed yeah. to do. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, you, I'm sure you, if you have questions or, or, or well, you, yeah. I, I, in, in the anecdote that you, that you brought up when you're introducing the cost, uh, framework to the students and they go, well, that sounds very analytic. That, that kind of, brings to mind you know and i hope it's okay to talk about this but uh your experience being a primarily psychodynamically oriented uh uh clinician and teacher in a uh in in a general you know count the teaching that teaches in a count a like a what's the word i'm looking for a counseling program and a psychology program that uh, are multi-theoretical, but right. not primarily psychodynamic. Yeah, like no one is. I mean, you could, you, yeah, no one in my program is psychodynamic. Yeah. And I would say when I interviewed for my position, that was a concern among the faculty. So that was one of the key decisions, whether we would hire somebody um, who comes in with this orientation that isn't, and, and, and remember, most people who aren't familiar with psychoanalytic theory and psycho contemporary psychodynamic theory have not even looked at the empirical studies, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they're looking at a very 
how they studied Freud and it's uh, they just feel like it's not something that is scientific and um, it's a very I guess distorted view of Freud but uh, incomplete view of psychodynamic theory definitely mm-hmm. and and so it came down to the decision like where certain people said well don't we want our students to be um, exposed to the different schools of thought so you can make an argument for him not being here because he's coming in with a an orientation that may be not be empirically validated as, as others, but he's also giving our students a different way of thinking. And so that won out. So in that sense, I feel comfortable with the program enough that that majority of my colleagues felt that way, that mm-hmm. obviously they made the decision to say to move forward with my hire because they, they believe in this way of looking at, like you said, multiple perspectives rather than just saying we should have one that dominates, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's I'm sorry it's it's just kind of wild. I mean, my yeah my understanding is as far as clinicians that actually would describe themselves as being of a particular uh, theoretical orientation, psychodynamic is either the most or second most common of people who aren't just saying eclectic. Mm-hmm. So the idea that it's like oh well we'd have to include that. Uh, almost as an afterthought, they give this idea, this well-rounded idea. It's absurd. <laughs> well, I also think, let's say if you don't, let's say if you were in a program that didn't have uh, psychodynamic training integrated into it, mm-hmm. I would think once you started practicing in, you know, beyond your education, I would think there would be a pool to go deeper. Yeah. And you would look for like a theory that would allow to do that. And that's where dynamic theory lends itself really well. And so I think when you're meeting clinicians out in the, the world and many are more open to the idea of dynamic theory, it's because they've, they probably in working in the field really feel like these other theories that they're presented to, with are limiting mm-hmm. and not complete in, in how they're wor- seeing their work with their patients. And so, I mean, if that's the case, then it's really promising, right? That 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 I don't care how psychodynamic theory remains relevant as long as it's it's still relevant. Yeah. Um, whether it's in the universities or just people practicing uh, independently. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and this came up in a previous episode, but and a lot of the new modalities, they seem there seems to be a heavy borrowing either. You know, in the case of something like, uh, I think, schema therapy, where it's very open about what it borrows from Mm -hmm. uh, psychodynamic thinking. Uh, Or, I mean, uh, internal family systems just seems to have such a psychodynamic bent to it. Mm -hmm. um, But even what I, but mindfulness is, mm. is like when Freud talks about the transference in the room, He's talking about a really deep level of mindfulness and that he's saying what I don't okay, you can bring all this stuff out, you can tell all these stories, but Freud said, let's look at what's happening in the room. Um, mm-hmm. and most therapists who are not dynamic don't care as much as what's happening in, in that relationship, in that room. Mm-hmm. Um you know, like Freud or the psychodynamic therapist can be like, you know, in this room, we, it seems like we can't, there's certain emotions that can't be expressed in this room. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and that happens within families, but that happens in the consulting room because the patient won't allow it in because they, it, it's too scary or it's whatever. But I think we as analysts are mindful of that. And we want the patients to be mindful of that. Like I always say, the patients that I've seen for a long time, I, and they're the good patient, I, I will say stuff like, you know, we've been together for a while and it's just really, I find it really hard to fathom that you haven't been frustrated and angry with me. Um, yeah. And you come here week after week and I listen to you and I, I make these, ask these questions, I make these comments, I make interpretations about what's going on, and you seem to accept it. And I'm wondering, haven't I been off? Haven't I been... And I remember saying one time, um, uh, telling maybe a little bit too much about me, but um, it was a time in my life when there was a family member who was dying. Mm. I had a terminal illness of cancer, and I was flying back and forth uh, from the East Coast to West Coast to be with uh, this family member. And um, I was tired. You know, I wasn't getting a lot of sleep. And I was seeing a patient that I had seen in psychodynamic psychotherapy for probably about a good six years. Um, she was doing well. And uh, she kind of just wanted to stay in treatment beyond what, you, what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the, she was able to function, the symptoms are gone, and she liked the process and she started seeing it as like an investment in herself you know she's a professional and she was just like this is how am i gonna this is how i'm gonna treat myself you know people buy nice bottles of wine i'm gonna go to therapy and just <laughs> kind of learn about myself and figure out how to understand the people uh, in the world and myself in the world and 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 so you know the sessions were good but uh i fell asleep in one of the sessions not mm. like um, not like a snore fool. So I was, you know, like your eyes get tired, you know, and you kind of nod off really quick and you catch yourself. Sure. So that happened. It wasn't like it was. And she said, she noticed. She said, like, oh, you're, you're really tired. Mm. Are you okay? Um, and I just remember in that moment, just thinking, um, you know, um, you know, is the patient going to be angry? Here she is paying for this. My, my time, my session, and I'm falling asleep, you know? Um, but she wasn't angry. She, she took care of me, I felt, in that moment. But I also felt in the back of my mind um, that this patient was always the good patient in some way. And eventually I brought that up later on. Um, you know, I, I didn't feel ready to bring it up because I, I didn't want to reveal so much about, you know, why I was so tired and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But we brought it up, and um, she, she was able to, on a certain level, express some frustration, right? But then we were able to talk about, in the years of working together, why she wasn't able to express frustration with me. Um, and she was very honest, and I felt this was like six years in the treatment, right? And you're thinking, and she said, like, basically what, um, if you read Kleinian theory about the good object, she said, you're the good person in my life. Mm. You are the only person in my life so far who has been this good to me. And I didn't want to see you as someone who is flawed, that someone would give up and lose and would fall asleep in the session. So, yeah, she was able to say that, you know, and, but that took a long time. And that took me to fail, almost in a say that most analysts would say, how do you fail? And in, not in a sense that it's an intentional fail, but to fall asleep on a patient because I wasn't taking care of myself enough to, to, to 
get myself to level and then to have her talk about eventually why she needed to hold me in that way, why she didn't want to criticize me when I made interpretations that were incorrect or when I asked questions that she felt were inappropriate to not hmm. be able to do that. And then I feel like after that, the, 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 the relationship grew and how it should grow. Um, it, yeah. it brings to mind my perhaps poor understanding of Kohut where a lot of the work gets done when the therapist messes up. That, yeah. That optimal yep. <laughs> frustration. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, and, but, it, but it's, it's both ways, right? It's the therapist failing, but also the patient being able to ready to say what they need to say about it. Right. Yeah. Rather than towards just saying maybe early in treatment, not being able to trust me enough to say like, Oh, you know, I fall asleep at work sometimes to your excuse. You know, and really, you know, and not really talking about what it means when someone you depend on lets you down yeah, some way um, or misunderstands you or, uh, yeah, hurts you. Yeah. I think, I think we're, we're coming close to the end of, uh, of our time today, okay. but, um, I get. I guess if there's one thing I kind of wanted to check in around towards the end would be, um, well, you, you know, I I know you first and foremost as an educator. So, what you would perhaps have to say to um, to somebody who's thinking about maybe applying to a graduate program and counseling or social work or even in uh, psychoanalysis. I, I, I kind of imagine that those might be two different things to say. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so if they're, I mean, if they're curious about going into the field, how I would, like what, I guess there's so many ways I could, I mean, because this happens to me a hundred times a semester just because there's so few, like I've become the faculty in the department that everyone refers to of a student hints at uh, wanting to create a mental health where last semester uh, during the pandemic, I conducted two workshops called mm. Careers in Mental Health where students can come in and I kind of introduce them to the different career paths make the distinctions between each, and then they get to ask questions, right? Mm. But I think you're, you're asking a deeper question more about uh, should they pursue it, or are they fit, a fit for it, or what, what do you... I'm not sure if that's what I was asking, but I kind of like it better than what I was asking. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> I always, when, it's, when I have time, and these workshops don't lend to it, because I'm, I'm, I'm doing 30 students in one of these workshops, uh, before COVID, when students could come to my office hours, they would sit with me and I would ask them questions about, you know, what, why do they want to do this type of work? You know, uh, and I tried to give them a sense of what the work entails rather than this idea, this fantasy idea of what they see in the media. Um, and a part of me kind of wants to scare them off too, not in the sense mm -hmm. that uh, I want them to really want it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I say like, I, I, they'll say like most students come in and will say like, I've always been the person in my family or my peer group to help others. Mm-hmm. You know, that people have told me that on some level I'm a good listener, um, that I give good advice. And I'll say stuff like, um, you know, in all those situations, you're helping people you care about, people who, um, you know, you want to see doing better in life. Uh, you may share similar values and histories, but are you willing to help someone who uh, you don't have that, those good feelings towards? Mm-hmm. Um, and I always say, like, you know, you... A lot of people say they want to work with people who have been victimized, but would you, how comfortable would you feel working with someone who, the perpetrator mm. of violent acts? You know, I want them to think of, I want them entering the profession curious about the human condition. So when we say that Freud or therapists have to sit in a non judgmental way, we really have to mean that. So for me, I'm, I'm more curious about, I'm more interested in your curiosity about human behavior than your desire to help. That means mm-hmm. that desire to help is secondary because the desire to help should exist in everyone who is healthy. And you can go into any profession or stay in the profession that you are. You can be the cashier at the Hannaford supermarket and be the most helpful person to bring a smile to somebody's face, mm-hmm. to help people when they need something, assistance in that way in the store, or, and, and, and make a difference every day in your job. But why do you want to do this? Why do you want to help in this way with mental health, you know, to be a therapist? And I think that goes back to being curious about the human condition. So I want them to hear how much they're curious about oh yeah, I, I would want to help that person who's a perpetrator because I want to understand why they do that. How did they get there? What would motivate someone to behave in that way? If they answer in that way, then I feel more confident in saying you should do this. If, but if they don't go in that direction, to me, I'm not saying they can't learn or they won't be a great therapist. They, they don't have opportunities to grow in that area. But to me, they're not, the student that I'm thinking, I can write a letter for you. Take to my me, course. You know, yeah. um, I want you're thinking on the you're on the right track. So, in that sense, I'm more curious about the human. They're curious about curiosity and the human condition than their desire to help. So, yeah, I would think that the real hazard is, you know, they might they 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 might be very bright and altruistic, and they might be technically a very good therapist, but they just get just bored and burnt out. Yeah. 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 Or people will say, people will say like, I was helped by a therapist. So now I want to help other people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking, but you know, we have to, you, you, your therapist helping you is one treatment, right? Mm-hmm. Does that mean, and let's say if they come in and I said, so let's say you start working at an agency and they want you to run a group for people with on an autism spectrum, which isn't something you are identify with being on the spectrum, you know, are you willing to just, it has to go beyond like somebody helping me. Yeah. You know, I, it has to be like 
people are presenting with different, you know, trajectories and traumas and struggles in life and wanting to uh, understand all those things and being able to commit yourself to wanting to do that on that level rather than just saying, I want to help people because some, someone helped me once. It's not, I don't know, that, that, it's not enough for me. I, I'm not, it's a good start, but it's not enough. And so the student can go on and hopefully in their training understand that that's not enough. That, that it, like you said, they'll burn out if that's the motivation. It, it's just it won't carry them. I think that's appropriately complicated advice. Because <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not definitive, but I don't think it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it's a, it, you're posing a question. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, unless, unless there's anything that you feel like we didn't get to, we could probably wrap up here. Oh, I definitely want... So for anyone who's listening, that cost model mm-hmm. is made... I, I always want to reference people who, who, who've done the good work. It's, it's a psychoanalyst by the name of Alan with an A- A-L-L-A-N, Franklin. And he's a psychoanalyst in Canada. And he's obviously more object relations, but that model comes from him. And if anyone wants to read him, he's also someone who can explain uh, the theory really well and and how it's applied in the room. And I think when I talked to you previously, that's how I I work. I hmm. want to know what's going on in the room. I want to be explain it to others what's going on in the room, but also have them be able to understand what's going on in the room with them. Because I think the work that we do is enormously challenging and we can get so easily lost in it. And so when someone, you find someone or something that makes that process of being in that room easier, it's gold. So he's one of the people who have been able to do that. Thank you.